Where are you? Are you in Lisbon? No, it's Spain in the north. Okay. Uh, it's called Gal- right. Galicia. Galicia? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. What about you? Where are you? Where are you right now? Buenos Aires. I'm in I'm in Venice Beach. We had the this AI Dream Forum weekend with the Forum, where we did the Ira Greenberg show and we did the Pindar von Arman Spotlight. And here for a couple more weeks, and then we're going to be scouting locations in Venice, Italy, for next April, and scouting locations in Paris for next February. And then shifting focus to Buenos Aires, September and October as we get ready for November. Right. And Buenos Aires is already the location, the, the venue, all that is all booked. Pretty much. I think we're in a good place. We have a great kind of core location in downtown Buenos Aires near the Teatro Colón. It's a square called Plaza de Libertad. Mm. It's a kind of a beau art palace that in apparently in the, called Palacio Guerrico and in the 20s it was uh, there's a theater inside a mm. sort of a classic proscenium theater that probably fits i don't know 3 or 400 people and it's where they the first radio broadcast from Argentina was right so that's where we're going to be minting crypto patagonians and where we will be hosting the Buenos Aires collection and then there'll be some other activations around Buenos Aires that weekend, the weekend of November 2nd through 5th. And then there's a special expedition to uh, Patagonia, to Calafate, for this project with Death Beef that he's been uh, teasing out. That sounds fantastic. So I was in Mexico City for Bright Moments. That was my first one. It, it was really an amazing experience. I cannot wait to see how the, the one in Argentina turns out. But for those listening, maybe some of the, 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 the listeners are familiar with Bright Moments or maybe they haven't been to one of the, either the galleries or the events. Could you tell us, like, what's Bright Moments? How do you define it? We are a, a new thing that, that emerged after the pandemic when everyone was stuck inside collecting things and and making and minting NFTs. And and that was the, the backdrop that we started, right? We are, it started as a, just a community art project here in Venice Beach. We had the idea of renting a space. This was March, April of 2021. So it was right before what they call JPEG summer. Mm. I don't think we really knew. I think we knew that there was going to be a lot of energy and a lot of creativity that was unlocked through this new file format because fundamentally ERC-721s are literally a blockchain file format. Mm-hmm. It is something that I was paying attention to for a while. I saw CryptoKitties and CryptoPunks in 2017 after the emergence of Bitcoin and Ethereum. But during the pandemic, so many people were just stuck at home and they were spending so much time online and buying and selling things. We saw this interesting dynamic emerge of meme culture, of GameStop and meme stocks on on Wall Street. And NBA Top Shot was very, had a lot of momentum. And then Super Rare and Foundation were growing every day. And so that was really the backdrop for me for when I helped to secure a lease right underneath the Venice Beach sign on Windward Ave. And we got a lease for six months Mm. and we put up a couple, we hung a couple screens from the ceiling 
and we called ourselves uh, NFT Gallery. And the initial idea was to show NFTs on these screens. It was good foot traffic near the Venice Boardwalk, and the Venice Boardwalk was very popular because it wasn't shut down. Everything else around the world was closed, but the beach was still open and people were walking on the boardwalk and it just felt like a big relief to be able to do something outside of the house. And so we organized around that. We organized ourselves as a DAO, not as a traditional company. And the idea initially was to show minted NFTs. So we could show LeBron James top shot moments, or we could show people every days mm -hmm. without having to get permission and without having to ship paintings. Right. And that was how it started. And I think the magic bit of luck for us was the first artist that we reached out to do a, a live exhibit with was Jeff Davis, yes. who happens to be the one of the co-founders and the chief creative officer of Artblocks and a accomplished generative art educator and artist. And through uh, uh, Jason Ting, who's also another um, amazing generative artist, he reached out to Jeff and invited him to do a show uh, at the gallery in Venice Beach in June. And he agreed. He lives in um, Arizona. And he uh, and his wife, Kelly, came. And there was 10 portals, they were called. And they were all generated on art blocks they were generated in advance so we actually sold them i think it was on OpenSea in an auction they weren't generated in real time but because we were working with jeff he really introduced us to art blocks and generative art and this opportunity to generate the artwork live in the gallery mm -hmm. and that is what inspired our collection of crypto Venetians, which was our first set of a thousand crypto citizen pixel portraits that we minted on Artblocks live only to people that came physically to the gallery. And that was really unique, this idea that you had to show up physically to mint something online. And it, it didn't make a ton of sense. It made sense because it was a, a hook. It was a way of driving foot traffic to the gallery in the afternoon when no one else would be there. Because at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, if you don't have a new art opening, no one's going to come. And we thought, well, why don't we give away free NFTs to people that show up? And, and that's how we started. Yeah, that's fantastic. A couple of things. That was during the pandemic. We were almost over with the pandemic. So at that time, you weren't thinking about traveling the world, opening galleries in different locations. That's no, no, not at all, no. right? No. That happened after. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was a pipe dream. Mm. You know, I think we were all, we were stuck inside for so long. There was real wanderlust that none of us had traveled you know, <laughs> for a couple of years. And I think maybe within the core idea of bright moments there was an idea to expand to galleries around the world but it didn't feel possible i think we we felt that that technically it would be interesting to link networks of screens right like the one thing that i think we all agree is whether you're using artblocks or fx hash or openc or blur or verse or 
um, props or object, whatever it is, if you're on a phone, it sucks. Mm. If you're on your laptop, it's a little less sucky. But if you're looking at the artwork on a 65 inch or an 85 inch beautiful Samsung screen, mm. that's how it should be seen. Yeah. Right. And so there's just a natural draw and there's a natural interest in bringing these tokens to life in a much more visceral way. And I don't think, and again, after the pandemic, we didn't want to put on VR glasses. Mm. Like we wanted to be outside. We wanted to be with people. And so I think we were one of the first to kind of offer that experience of come together and you had to wear a mask and you had to get your temperature checked, but Super Chief was doing it. There was a, you know, a handful of galleries around the world that were just starting to open up quietly and showcase NFTs on digital screens. And it felt like, it felt important. It felt like we were doing something that was more human and, and more tangible and more emotional as opposed to sitting on a Zoom call and flipping NFTs and minting 10 and trading three. Like that was really the, the baseline. Yeah. And so we thought, let's elevate this into a physical experience. And, and, and that's how we got started. And that's what the energy came from. Yeah, you are also uh, one of the pioneers of the live minting experience. I remember hearing for the first time about that from bright moments. I'm not sure if there was somebody, to just, you mentioned Super Chief, maybe they did it first. I'm not sure. W were you the first one or was there a group of different galleries doing that at the time? You know, I, I think displaying NFTs on screens, I think that had been done before. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that fundamentally original about that because anybody can project an NFT on a wall or put it up on their television using Chromecast or AirPlay. I think what was unique about us was this marriage of physical location, generative art, and the opportunity to mint something live for the first time in front of other people, mm. right, in a gallery. And I think that is something that I do think we pioneered. We sort of brought, definitely brought it to, we upgraded it and we made it into a, a shared artistic communal experience, starting with the Crypto Venetians. And then we did a project with Aaron Penny and Justin Beretta called Rituals that said, okay, instead of just minting these, you know, PFPs, these pixel characters, which were crypto citizens, what if we applied this to other forms of art that were more abstract, that weren't, it wasn't about going into the gallery and minting a PFP and walking out with it, but actually the artwork itself was being brought to life mm -hmm. in front of you. And, and that's just how we started weaving these experiences together. And so um, I'll remember Tyler Hobbs came to rituals in uh, September of 2021. And we started talking about doing his first uh, project after Fidenza, his first drop on Artblocks, which became Incomplete Control that we minted in New York City uh, in December of 2021. Mm. Um, and because of the, the interest and the demand for live minting crypto Venetians, we had the opportunity to sell tokens in advance as mint passes to mint crypto New Yorkers. And, you know, the mint pass was something that I think we also helped to formulate and, and, and productize. I think there's a lot of different versions of them now, but this idea of selling a token in advance, that's really a promise to a future token that's minted IRL. Mm -hmm. And it's a way that we've used to 
finance this journey, this roadmap that started more than two years ago and now has us going to our eighth city in Buenos Aires in November. Right. And Seth, one of my questions, because I, I'm very curious, how did you mention already Jeff Davis, Tyler Hobbs, Aaron Penny? How did you manage in those early days to attract such a fantastic artist? Jeff was part of our blog, Tyler Hobbs, already at the time was widely known. You were a kind of a young gallery. You did have a location in Venice Beach, which I think was a, a great idea. But what do you think was the secret to attract those artists in the early days? Maybe there, there weren't many galleries trying to do something like very serious and, and with an art focus, or what was it? I think we were having fun. You know, like we weren't taking ourselves too seriously. I think the artists felt that. And when we started, it was just a group of us who had met at a coffee shop called Minotti's. Liam and his dad, Louis, own and run the coffee shop. And that's where we'd meet outside on the patio. And we met Phil there. And Christy, my partner, and I would, would hang out there. And her daughter, Amicia, and Jacob and Charlie, my sons, and my niece, Leah, and Jesse and, and Gary and... Arena. It was just people from the neighborhood and Dole, who's my downstairs neighbor. Like it just came from a really healthy place and we weren't um, caught up in the gallery world. Mm. We had nothing to lose mm. and we were all united in that we were sort of tired of being stuck inside and we wanted to experience things more tangibly and we wanted to travel around the world. Mm. And there was so much demand for this new art form that it gave us the the financial wherewithal to to create this journey. We have an amazing artist and creative director in Chan. We set our sights on doing something that I don't think any sober venture capitalist or equity investor <laughs> would have supported yeah. because it was crazy. <laughs> and that's what we've done. And I think starting in New York and then shifting to Berlin, Berlin was a very big moment for us because it was out of the United States, and we um, we filled a 80,000-square-foot factory with digital art, and we had almost hundreds of screens in one 30-by-30-foot 30 30 giant screen that looked like a Blade Runner scene. And this was Germany and Berlin that was just coming out of the pandemic, and it was so monumental. I think we still pinch ourselves that we were able to elevate this very transactional, technical, lowercase a art form into something that was so monumental and experiential. And it gave us a sense of like how big this canvas could be when you combine interesting locations with this new form of, of code-based art on-chain where everybody participating to some extent is an owner. It's not just coming, it's not just going to Freeze or Art Basel and ogling at paintings that are owned by billionaires. A lot of these pieces are expensive and the, and the cost of entry is high, but it's much more democratized than the traditional art world. Mm -hmm. Totally, yeah. And, and there, there are some interesting points there. You mentioned the team, the core team. I, I failed when I was in Mexico City that the vibe was very casual, but at the same time, that everybody was very focused, working very hard. The team at the time, you, you told me it was 
over 20 people in the core team, but you also have the sub-DAOs around the world. And the team, uh, I think most of the people travel, right, to the different locations. You can feel like a very nice uh, community and, and they are doing something, as you said, that they enjoy it for fun. My question is... Usually. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. It can be very stressful. It's easier when it's magic internet money and ETH is at 4,000 mm. and everything sells out than it is when ETH is at 1,000 and everyone thinks it's going to zero and there's too much supply of generative art and things don't sell out. So we've gone through a war breaking out in, in Ukraine when we were on our way to Berlin. We've gone through COVID outbreaks in New York with incomplete control. We've gone through internet outages in Mexico. We've gone through all sorts of challenges along the way. I mean, the case of Tokyo was, was pumping <laughs> and the cost of minting on ETH was astronomical. And it really pissed off artists like Zancan, who was so slowly willing to move mm. to ETH for this drop. And suddenly the cost of minting his project was outrageous because of, for all things, Pepe coin. Right. So, right. you know, we, we've been through a lot of adversity. We've met some amazing people. Every city we go, as you say, we try to create a lasting community that outlives the initial activation. And that's what we call a sub-DAO. And because we are organized on chain, we're really just a collection of multi-signature wallets, economically in terms of our treasury, in terms of the minting, in terms of the mint passes and the NFTs, and in terms of the way we vote on what city comes next. And every person that owns a crypto citizen, there ultimately will be 10,000. We're at 7,000 now. We'll be at 8,000 after Buenos Aires with the crypto Patagonians. We'll be at 9,000 after Paris with the crypto Parisians. And then we'll achieve full mint out next April in Venice, Italy with the crypto Venetians. Every single one of those NFTs has an equal vote over everything we do as a DAO. And so there's this, this promise of progressive decentralization so that by the end of this roadmap, by next April, we will have these established communities that will be able to function independently to host their own community events and their own shows, but also organize globally like we've done for um, Picasso's Metropolis show. And we have a, a new project that we'll be announcing in a couple of days that will be activating all of the communities, including Tokyo mm. in August. Yeah, that's fantastic. So if anybody wants to be part of the DAO, they can get a crypto citizen. They can do it in an event or in the secondary market and that gives them access to the voting rights of the cities and also they are part of the DAO. And my question about that, Seth, I know you have been an entrepreneur for a long time, over 25 years, and, and you created different tech companies. So with that experience, what do you think is like a challenge when you look at a DAO? What are some of the challenges on running a DAO uh, online? How do you keep people engaged on voting and how do you keep everybody happy? I think that's not possible. But what do you think about DAOs in general? Maybe not only in terms of art, but for other ideas and other concepts. What are your thoughts on DAOs and the challenges? I think it's, it's a new kind of economic primitive. So it's a really powerful machine. Just like NFTs are incredibly flexible and can do all sorts of different things. As, as in terms of being objects, DAOs are organizations 
and they can be aligned and tuned and organized in lots of different ways based on tokens. And depending on your supply of tokens and depending on the demand of the tokens and depending on you know, how you organize all that, you can, I think as we've tried to demonstrate, you can move pretty quickly. I think a traditional corporate structure would have been very hard for us to move as fast as we have across these different cities and stand them all up and network them. We're able to use crypto citizens as a, as a format, as a, as a mechanism for aligning interests and building community. There's still a lot of regulatory FUD, particularly in the United States in terms of securities law and, and what is the status of an NFT? Is it a commodity? Is it a security? Yada, yada, yada. And I think the next couple of years will be really interesting. But I think in places like Tokyo and Dubai and Hong Kong, there's a lot more support for using crypto native organizations and crypto native objects like NFTs as the next wave of value creation for professional organizations. Still, it comes back to people. And whether it's web one or web two or web three, you know, building a company, building a project is hard. People in their 20s are different than people in their 50s or different than people in their 30s. And people are coming from very different expectations with different levels of skills and different levels of ego and confidence. Just organizing all that globally is really tough. Bright Moments is the brand. And there's a lot of really powerful individuals within it, but we are all supporting this brand that we've built that we want to stand the test of time. And when we look back in 10 or 20 years, we want this to be seen as a really important, you know, cultural institution that created some amazing artwork over years that continues to engage people around the world around live minting and these live crypto native experiences. Mm. Yeah, you also play a big role in education. Because I, I remember Mexico City, there were some fantastic talks by different generative artists like Zach Lieberman, Casey Reese, some amazing panels. But before, and what I found interesting is that before the actual event, you go to these cities, Mexico, Tokyo, Berlin, and you establish a community. So you spend time there. Uh, I don't know if it's one month before, but you work hard to build this community of the, the local sub-DAO, which then act as leaders and they are attracting and explaining the concept to other people in the city. So that's very interesting. When are you planning on doing that in Buenos Aires? Is, is that like a couple of months before, one month before? How, how do it usually works? Or it depends on the city? I think there's, there's no cookie cutter. We definitely learned along the way. We've made so many mistakes. One of the big uh, mistakes that we made when we left Venice Beach to start minting crypto New Yorkers and do reflections with Jeff Davis and do incomplete control with Tyler Hobbs, we kind of just ghosted the Venice Beach community because we just all moved to New York and we started focusing on that. And we realized that like we have an obligation to not just open up new communities, but to continue to feed and nurture and engage with past ones. Mm. Um, each community is part of our family. And so we've gotten better 
and we think about multiple phases. There's a pre-mint phase, there's a minting phase, and there's a post-mint phase. The minting phase is the best. When you were in Mexico City in November, it was a magical four days of amazing workshops with, you know, during Kate Voss and James Higa talk about the history of generative art or your presentation or Gambrood and Sophia Crespo talking about AI art or doing a hands-on workshop with Casey Reeves and, and Zach Lieberman and amazing food. <laughs> and there was Spanish language generative art instructions for Spanish, for Mexican art students, not to mention new work being minted every night from William Mepin, Iskra, Marcello, Dan Calderon, and Snowfro. That's peak bright moments, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. You can imagine there's months that go in to prepare for that. And it starts with getting the community activated. And that's usually in the form of meetups of just saying, hey, we're here. This was, I went down to Buenos Aires with, with Christy and Chan and Leo, who leads our Mexican city sub DAO and Phil. And we were in Buenos Aires about a month ago, early in June. We had 50, 70 people, you know, join us for a meetup in Palermo. And we just said, hey, we're here. This is what, this is what we've done. This is what we're going to do. We communicate on Discord and Twitter and Instagram and all those channels. And we just want to learn. I think we learn a lot. We met some amazing artists. Almost all of them are going to be featured in November as part of our collections. Mm -hmm. And we learn about um, the culture and, and we just demonstrate that, hey, this is not a cookie cutter. This is not one size fits all. We really want to catalyze the local Porteño community in Buenos Aires in and around AI art and generative art and live minting and everything that we've come to stand for. And then meanwhile, we finish an amazing activation in Tokyo that was even bigger than Mexico City. Mm. Multiple locations. We had 35 artists from Lars Wander to Lee Shiki to Melissa Wiederecht to Zan Can, Kabibi, Takawo, Ketel Galad, Claire Silver, Ganbrood, Mario Klingeman, Helena Saren, Emi Kusano, and A.A. Murakami. Just amazing collection of artists. But now the hard work is, okay, we have to continue that. Mm. We have to to see that community live on because you don't just want to do something and just leave. We have to maintain community. And so every city, it gets a little bit harder right. to keep all these existing plates in the air. And to maintain the quality from all sides, right? From the location, the event, the logistics, uh, the art, the artist. And that takes me to my, my next question. How do you scout for artists if there are artists listening that would like to be part somehow of Bright Moments? How do you do it? What's the process? There's nothing super formal. We have a, um, our own kind of like curation call internally across the different sub DAOs every week where we talk about artists that we've met. Most of the time, it's artists that we work with introducing us to other artists. Mm -hmm. And I think we've always felt that if, if, we do, if we do well by artists and we help them achieve their visions experientially and we try to be as generous as we can economically, we typically give 70% you know, of the proceeds to the artist, which is more than a typical gallery, mm -hmm. specifically when you consider how much production we put into a lot of these shows. We're coming at it from a very loving, caring, heartful place. And I think any artist will tell you that. And we're not perfect. We've definitely made mistakes along the way. But, you know, there's no private equity fund behind us that's taking profits. Everything we make, we pour back into, we generate ETH so that we can 
generate more art. We're not making more art so that we can hold on to more ETH.、Mm-hmm. Everything we make, we plow back into the project. And the thing that I think keeps us relatively sane is that this project was designed to be completed. It's a project. It's not a forever company. It's not how we intended it. We really think of this more like a, a giant movie、mm-hmm. or a, gradu- a graduate degree. We are two thirds the way through it. We have three more cities to go. At the end of next April, we're going to mint the ten thousandth crypto citizen, and that'll be it for crypto citizens. There'll be no more.、Mm-hmm. That'll become the foundation for whatever comes next. We have ideas of what we can do beyond the tenth city. The ten city roadmap is a really important, achievable goal that is giving us energy now because we see the finish line. And if it was just ongoing forever without any finish in sight. I think we'd all break down. I don't think we'd make it because because the, the pace we're going is insane,、mm-hmm. and the amount of travel is absurd. Yeah, it's not doable. That's a great point. You have a way to win. How do we win? We complete our project, which was、yeah. extremely ambitious from day one, and probably ninety nine percent, ninety five percent of projects that were born at the same times as bright moments. With everything that has happened, are closed now or are not operating. What you have done that you're traveling the world and bringing together some of the best artists and up-and-coming artists and showing that not in only in the U.S. but around the world. Yes, impressive. It's super impressive. And you mentioned you had some ideas of what's next. I'm, I'm sure you cannot. Reveal that. I think that's a hundred million dollar question. Everybody wants to know what happens next. But I was chatting with you once, and you were telling me the sub DAOs are going to be important. You want it to be more decentralized over time, and that actual real projects and concepts emerge from these communities. Is that more or less where you think it will go? What will happen in the future? More emphasis on the sub DAOs. Creating ideas, projects. There's like probably three areas that we can imagine pursuing after the tenth city, and there's no secrets. There's no master plan. This is becoming more and more decentralized because there's more stakeholders, more people that have a vested interest. One idea is okay. We do. I think we do a pretty good job organizing large scale live minting events. You know, and and making people feel good about generating art, and whether that's long form generative, whether that's working with some new AI art systems that we've been experimenting with a lot lately, we love bringing people together, feeding them, educating them, entertaining them, and giving them access to artists and connecting artists with other artists. I think we feel we love right, and I think a lot of us have different cultural. Memories growing up, and if you were really old, by before my time, it was going to Grateful Dead concerts, Burning Man, or Coachella, EDC, or going to the Miami Basel Freeze, or whatever experience, Cirque du Soleil. Even we think we're we're good at that. We're good at sort of bringing that level of production and connecting that in really interesting crypto native ways. And so we want to continue that. I don't think we can do that on a quarterly basis, but maybe we can do it on an annual basis. Maybe once a year, we do a bright moments event in one of the locations that we've minted in. Maybe one year it's in Tokyo, and the next year it's in Berlin, and the year after that it's in New York. So that's something that feels achievable. 
I know we're tired. I know after April, we're going to need a little time off, but we also have built something we're really proud of and we don't want to see it wither away. We want to continue to feed it. Um, we want to bring people together. In terms of the sub DAOs, we want to continue to nurture them. We want them to become independent and sustainable and that the Bright Moments sub DAO in New York has all the tools it needs in terms of the brand, in terms of technology, in terms of the people, in terms of the relationship with artists to be able to continue to put on events, educational seminars and workshops to be present for that emerging New York community. And there are already great organizations in New York like Art Matter, I think where I saw you last, Pioneer Works and Bob Lucas's New Station 3. So there are communities that we want to support and we want to stay connected with as we continue to really try to pioneer and push forward live minting in interesting ways and making it more and more exper experiential. Then I think the third piece, as I mentioned, are some of these tools and technologies. We've built a lot of tools that allow us to live mint in different locations and to display NFTs on screens over IP. We've designed and eaten our own dog food, as it were. And we've you know, already worked with Pace Gallery and the Glitch Gallery and Marfa, and we've worked with other partners, and I think we'll continue to do that. And all those tools and all those technologies, all that IP is owned by the crypto citizens. That is, there is only one entity here that, that all this value flows through. The value of the Bright Moments brand, the value of the know-how, the value of the tools and the technologies all flows through Parry Pursue to the citizen holders. I didn't think about that. That's actually impressive as well. It's a DAO that owns IP and kind of a hardcore tech IP. These systems are easy to build. When it comes to the smart contracts, all the things you mentioned that's uh, complex. Actually, I wanted to discuss a bit about the art, Seth. You mentioned our matter. That's where we, we saw last time you were in a panel discussing uh, with a traditional gallerist, AI art, generative art. A few months have passed since then. Tokyo happened, which was the first time that Bright Moments incorporated AI art. It was a fantastic lineup of artists. I was wondering, from your point of view, what was the reception when it comes to AI art compared to the generative code art? Do you see a difference in terms of the collectors? Are they more focused on one or the other? Or do you see there is an intersection? What was the reaction from your experience compared to other events, including AI, AI art? So I think we were really proud of the lineup that we brought together for Tokyo. It was really, for us, it was kind of unheard of to bring all of those figures under one roof and to all of them to show a hundred you know, outputs of new work. That felt great. I think there's a clear overlap of digital art collectors in the broadest sense. And, and whether I'm collecting a Snowfro or a Pindar von Armin, Claire Silver, or Zancan, it's digital art. It's code-based art. Some's using P5, some are using prompts and, and training their own GAN models. But I think fundamentally, it's just digital art. And, and we're really fortunate to work with these artists. We started our, our first AI drop was with Ivana Tao in Berlin last year. I think we got up to speed 
later than some, but earlier than most on FX hash and FX hash has become like Artblocks, a really important partner for us in terms of discovery. I love this latest. We did a great drop last week with Ira Greenberg that minted out really nicely. Beautiful, ancient automata works, and it's just art. And Richard Nadler's Yamabushi, amazing drop on verse, and I collected one myself. You look at that, and I don't know exactly what models he's using and whether it's stable diffusion or mid-journey or something else, but it's beautiful. It stands on its own as a great body of work. I think we've applied some standard evolving tokenomic structures to AI art the way that we have to generative art to create some apples to apples normalcy. We, we like editions of the hundred. Obviously, if it's an algorithm in generative art, it's going to be easier to output a hundred outputs than if you're hand selecting and curating like Dan Brew did for his collection in Tokyo. But it seems to work. I think collectors appreciate having relatively low cognitive load in terms of the kind of apples to oranges between generative art and AI art. So we'll continue to do that. That being said, it feels like generative art is more mature as a art form than AI art. The tools for AI are moving really quickly. You know, we just finished a, a weekend kind of unconference with a fantastic open source stable diffusion community called DForum. There's so much going on with large language models, with GANs, with all sorts of different um, ways of, of training and tuning stable diffusion in particular, but also the way that people are moving from text to image, from text to video, from image to image, from image to video, back and forth. In generative art, it's P5 and processing and shaders for the most part. There's clarity around the toolkit. I don't think you have that with AI art. There's a lot more that's opening up. There's also the business models aren't as clear. I think one of the most fundamental disconnects that I keep wrestling with is, I know Snowfro and others have talked about this in the generative side, is there's a sense of scarcity with generative art, with on-chain long form, there are a thousand fidenzas. And if tomorrow Tyler woke up and said, hey, by the way, I just minted 20 more, the contract wasn't really closed, all hell would break loose. We value our crypto punks because we know there's only 10,000 of them. So these generative art objects have become stores of value, networked stores of value that in an inflationary landscape, we trust. And we trust it that they're not going to get inflated. There's only 21 million Bitcoin. Now, when you think about AI art, it's all based on abundance. You can just keep generating more and more from these models. They're moving faster and faster. And so I'm not sure if the right art business model for AI art is enforcing scarcity. Maybe it isn't, but I think that's something that we're trying to figure out. Yeah, I think I totally agree. I think if you look at what Mprops is doing or Kate Bass, they are trying to incorporate the sort of scarcity feeling that you're mentioning that it's very mature when you look at art blogs and FX hash. The thing is that it's, changing so fast. So it's not only about prompts, it's also about creating your own models, your different neural networks. And by the way, you mentioned Ivona Tao. She was an uh, ML researcher and she will be in the, in the podcast 
not in the next episode, but in the future. I think a great question to ask her. But yeah, my point is that AI tools, the tool sets feels like they are changing too fast. They are evolving every day. When you look at shaders, when you look at P5, when you look at processing from K-series, the processing foundation, it's been around for a while. It's more mature. Also, I've seen, and not sure what are your thoughts about the combination of this generative coded medium and AI, because we have seen artists incorporating libraries that have some sort of neural networks using ChatGPT to generate code that can be considered as AI art because it's assisted by a machine. All these things are very hard to classify. Bright moment. When was it founded, says? I didn't ask you that. When was the first event? Uh, it was May of 2021. Right. Let's, at the same time as I started writing the newsletter, so it's two years and a bit more, and my point is that all these concepts, all these um, technologies being used for art in the distribution are very new. It's all new. And it will keep changing over time. One of my questions was, how do you see this space five, ten years from now? What do you see different? Where do you think we are going? I think it still has to touch all corners of the globe. I think the first wave of let's extend and connect these generative and AI art communities around the world. And I think we've just scratched the surface. A lot of it is United States, Latin America. We're trying to push it, obviously, into South America, Europe. We've done London, Berlin. We'll be doing Venice, Italy. We'll be doing Paris. But it's very Western-centric. Tokyo was important for us to you know, establish a beachhead into Asia. There's a huge amount of interest and support that we haven't felt anywhere else. We had support from the Shibuya mayor's office and got us a location in Asakura House for our generative art collection. Suntory was a huge partner and created some amazing experiential designs with us. But I think extending into Hong Kong, Taiwan, Seoul is very active, and I think that will continue. But then there's places like India or Russia, mainland China or Southeast Asia. I think there's going to be, just like there was with Web1, the browser and web two in terms of mobile and social media. I think we have to see this sort of full networking of these new art forms around the world. And that's going to take another five years, another seven years, another 10 years. Meanwhile, you have these kind of micro cycles going on where here in the United States, I don't know if it's like this in Europe, we're just coming out of maximum FUD. Now there can always be more FUD. Things feel like when it stops going down, it means it's going up. It feels like things have maybe stopped going down. Maybe it's a dead cat bounce. I don't know. But people are, are doing it, and it doesn't feel as bleak. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Mexico maybe feels bleak right now because I think they may be six months behind where we are further north. Tokyo is probably a year behind sort of culturally in terms of the NFT art zeitgeist. The FUD for them... Hopefully they don't go through a speculative bubble the way that we did. But you know what I mean? Within each of these communities, they have their own mini boom and bust cycles that they have to go through. Yeah, it takes time for it to expand across the world. That makes sense. I use a couple of metrics, which probably doesn't tell the whole picture. But I look a lot at the, my Discord server, where I have a community, you're part of it, of the, the premium readers. And I see the metrics, the conversations. It seems like 
the conversations are more frequent, and that's a good indicator of the interest, as well as the readers and the subscribers. I agree with you. It feels like the bottom passed, and we are slowly going up in terms, and it's different. It's a different time. It's not about the craziness of the PFPs. That seems to be gone for the most part. Now, it's more about specific communities, like bright moments, generative art, AI art, or different things, and people are finding those communities. So it feels more organic, more natural, not necessarily about making money. I think that part is, for the most part, gone. It feels exciting to be kind of back, trending up, more natural. I think that's going to be exciting. And for right moments, I think that's fantastic, because you already have a brand, you are established different parts of the world, and you are in a great position to keep educating people that are interested in this space. I fully agree. It will take some time to expand to, to the whole globe. And Seth, we are getting close to the hour, but I, I couldn't miss the chance to ask you about the upcoming Buenos Aires event. When do you think you will start to share some of the artists and some of the lineups that will be participating there? I think we will share the week after next. So I think on Wednesday this week, we're going to be sharing more information about our upcoming ArtBlocks collaboration with one of the greatest OG generative artists working today. And this will be our second ArtBlocks collab after Metropolis with MP Cause. And we'll give that a, a chance for people to kind of process and mark their calendars. That'll go live the week of August 14th. The week after next, we'll start to share more and more about this amazing lineup. We have 10 South American. We always have Jeff Davis. So like the inside and not even inside joke anymore is we have 10 South American artists, generative artists, except for Jeff Davis, who's not South American. He does a drop every city we go. So we'll have nine South American generative artists, but half of them are from Buenos Aires, as well as Jeff. And that'll be the Buenos Aires collection. We will be working with ArtBlocks. We'll be working with FXHash, some other platforms as well that we're talking with. That will really come out in two weeks. I'm just really happy with the lineup. They're artists, they're educators. Some are living in Buenos Aires. Some were born in Buenos Aires or living elsewhere. Some are from Panama, from Colombia. But we're very, very excited because it'll be the first city that we have so many artists from that region that we're featuring as part of the city collection, which we're really proud of. The theme, every city, we try to encapsulate it into sort of our own meme. In Berlin, it was monumental. In London, it was, it was posh or, or bespoke, or private. In Mexico, it was called, I think we called it Smoke and Mirrors. In Tokyo, the organizing principle was omakase. And in uh, Buenos Aires, the, the kind of the zeitgeist for us is, is going to be on-chain, but offline. So we're really going to lean into this idea of how do you play with ideas of, of doing on-chain work, but maybe not with screens. Or in the case further down in Patagonia, without access to the internet even. We're just looking to use these different locations to stretch the canvas and the toolkit for code-based art, for generative art, for crypto art in interesting ways. And so Paris will be another prompt for us. It'll be during Fashion Week. It'll be during NFT Paris late February. It'll be all around fashion and the spectacle of a fashion show. And then Venice, Italy, 
and next April will be a retrospective of everything we've done to date. That sounds phenomenal. I'm very excited. I'm, I'm from South America. I'm Venezuelan. It's very hard for South Americans to get a chance. There are different reasons. One is the language barrier, then also the economic about ease. It's very expensive to pay gas in Argentina with all the economical problems. It's very hard for artists to mean their own thing on ETH just because it's super expensive. It's amazing, Seth, what you're doing, bringing exposure to all, all these artists. I think it's phenomenal. And thanks so much for your time, Seth. It was great catching up with you. I hope we can do this more often. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the announcement. I want to see that lineup. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thanks to everybody that took the time to listen. We're always looking for artists, for collectors, for people to help us in different locations. It really does feel like a grassroots community effort. So appreciate you all. Thank you, everyone. If you couldn't listen to the whole thing, I will share this on my newsletter and also the podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google. You can listen to the whole thing there. Thanks so much for joining, everyone. Thanks. And congrats to you, Hugo. You've done an amazing job with the newsletter and with the community you've built. I really appreciate it. I share those insights as much as I can without violating my subscription rules. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Great to have you there as part okay. of the community. Thanks so much. Have a great Thanks day. A lot. Take care.